So, we're out of the book of Exodus uh, this week uh, because I wanted us to take time uh, to focus on Christmas and to consider the story of Christ's birth. And uh, we're going to be looking at a passage which may not often be connected to Christmas, but I hope uh, it'll connect the truth of Christ's incarnation in a new and powerful way uh, for us all this morning. But I wanted to start this morning by simply asking this question, what are you waiting for? And specifically, ask the question, what are you waiting for this Christmas? It's the Christmas season. I think uh, one of the reasons it's got so much energy around it is all of this anticipation that's built up. It's anticipation that we uh, build up on purpose with things like Advent as we anticipate the Advent of our Savior, the coming of our Savior into the world. It's something that's brought about by our culture and the kind of the secular reasons of how we celebrate Christmas, the anticipation. We're all anticipating Christmas morning uh, for various reasons. If some of those reasons are family, some of those things are the gifts, the things that we get. I know so many Uh, are excited for what might be under the tree Christmas morning. But what are you waiting for? Because I know every single one of this person in this room is waiting for something. You know, I think some of us are waiting for love this season. There's a reason that the Hallmark Christmas movies are so popular There's a lot of people waiting for love. And sentimentality, it reaches its peak right about this time of year, doesn't it? And it's not a bad thing. Sentimentality's not all bad. But we've got a lot of people who are waiting for love this time of year. There's a lot of us who are waiting for joy. It's a joyful time of year. We just sang a song about the joy that we know because of our Savior, but it's also a joyful time of year because it's the bringing back of family. It's the celebrating together with friends and loved ones. It's waiting for joy because some of you can't wait to unwrap that gift that you know is under the tree. Some of you can't wait, and so it's joy. You're waiting for that joy. Some of you can't wait to see those you love unwrap their gifts on Christmas morning. You're waiting for joy. But some of us are mourning the fact that there are fewer gifts under the tree this Christmas. There are fewer gifts because the money is not there. There are fewer gifts because of the loved ones that we've lost. And we're waiting for joy to come. Some of us are waiting for peace to come. Thinking surely this Christmas, this holiday season, our family, our friends, we can all get along. Surely peace will come this time around. Or maybe it's simply waiting for peace because you're saying, If I can just get away from work for just a few days, I'll have some peace. We're waiting for change. Christmas, in many ways, is the start of something new. 
It's not just new things that we get by the generosity and love of others, but it's a new year that we are about to begin. So we're waiting for change during this momentous time of the year. But even as we wait for that change, we realize that we're pretty powerless to bring about that change. We can't bring about the change that we want, much less the change that we need. So in the midst of all this waiting, we are waiting for hope. We're waiting for hope. Surely hope will come. But waiting for hope is pointless if we look in the wrong place. And I want to show you this morning some waiting in the text of Luke that we see directed in the right place as a guide for us to direct our hope in the right place. So the story that we're reading this morning, it contains a lot of waiting. A lot of people waiting for various reasons. So I'm going to read this morning from Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verses 22 to 39. I want to invite you to stand with me as we read about waiting in the Gospel of Luke. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, this is Mary and Jesus, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him, Jesus, to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Redemption of Jerusalem, sorry. In verse 39, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you have 
sent your Son to dwell with us, to dwell among us, to become like us, and Lord, to die for us. Lord, we see that in this text this morning, the wonderful news that a Savior has come, the promised Messiah of God's people, but not just God's people of Israel, but the entire world. He is now here. The wait is over. But Lord, as we look at these people who are waiting, may we learn, Lord, both from their waiting and from their response. Lord, may we consider, Lord, their trust and their faith in you. And Lord, may we be given that faith so that we too may trust in you and be used by you. God, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, may we all be encouraged by it. May we be challenged by it and strengthened by it, Lord, for the purposes of your mission to make your name known among all the nations. Lord, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So, what are you waiting for? We had a lot of waiting in this story. If you haven't picked up on it, uh, we, there's specific things going on with Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. There's waiting going on at the temple through these two obscure individuals uh, who are mentioned, of course, nowhere else in Scripture, but mentioned here as unique individuals blessed by the Lord to confirm the arrival of Christ. But they're waiting and they're rewarded for their faithfulness. They're rewarded for their waiting. I want to examine this waiting because, as we've talked about already, we're waiting at Christmas. It's all about this anticipation. We're waiting for the Christ child to arrive. We're waiting for the day to come that we might rejoice Advent is a, a period of darkness as we wait in the darkness for the light to come. Hence the candles that we light every Sunday. Hence the lights that are in the garland in the Christmas tree. They're visual representations of the truth that we get to celebrate. That in the midst of darkness, light has come. And we get a glimpse of the Christmas story We're we're really familiar, probably, with the Christmas story from the first part of Luke chapter 2. We know about the census that was given while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and we know that Joseph had to go to the house of his fathers, the household of David in Bethlehem. We know that story. But of course, Christmas doesn't end there, does it? And Luke picks up with what happens after Jesus is born. What's going on? What, what has to happen as Jesus isn't just born and that's the end of the story, but as Jesus, God made flesh, is raised within a household, within the household of Israel to be the man who would die for the sins of the world. There's waiting that takes place. and The first waiting that we see is actually in a verse I didn't read, uh, in verse 21. But we see there's waiting. That Think about this. Jesus was not given a name. He's not given his name traditionally until he's eight days old, the day that he is circumcised. 
think, think about that. We read the story from Matthew about the promise that he was called Jesus, he was named Jesus, because they were told that he was to be named Jesus, but he wasn't yet given that name until the traditional eighth day when he was circumcised. But they waited those eight days to name him and think about the profundity of the fact that these shepherds came by, that these people, angels testified to the uniqueness of this child that was born. Mary and Joseph waited to give him a name that declared Yahweh saves. So they wait eight days before he's circumcised and given his name. And then Mary had to wait another 40 days. And you may be, so well, how does this tie into what's going on here? Luke is, is giving us a very important side of the story that we often under, overlook. We, don't, we underestimate the significance of this. It says that in verse 22, the time came for their purification. Their purification according to the law of Moses. You see, the law of Moses says this. If we go to Leviticus 12, we realize that Mary, she's a Jewish woman under the Mosaic law that she must perform certain acts in order to remain ceremonially clean so that she can worship. And some of those laws are directly... They're, Luke is talking about them in his gospel story of Christ's birth, so they've got to be important for us to understand. This isn't insignificant. It's not just some aside. There's something significant to the fact that he's including this in the story. That Mary is not pure. She's ceremonially unclean. So we read in Leviticus 12 the, the background to understand what's going on here. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, so this is in Leviticus 12, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, then she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for thirty-three days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So what we see in the text of Luke 2 is Mary faithfully completing what's required of her under the law. Faithfully following the Lord and obeying the instructions given to Moses over a thousand years before. There's significance to this. She's waiting. She has to wait 40 days before she can worship properly. And what we see and what's implied by this is that they must be purified. Jesus, though he's sinless, has a committed no wrong he, by being born of his mother, she's ceremonially impure, and therefore he is ceremonially impure, so she faithfully obeys the law. And there's significance to this, because not only is he taken to be purified, but what happened on the eighth day, just like the law required, he was circumcised. 
And that circumcision had purpose behind it. That circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God established with the people of Israel. So we see the faithfulness of his parents to make sure that he was was brought up, raised up in accordance with the law. That they go to the temple even and just as the law required it. And not just that, but they weren't required to take him. There was no instruction to take the baby too with this sacrifice. But they take Jesus, so they go above and beyond the law to present him because it's not just about this purification, but as the text says, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. We're going to read later in Exodus as we work through that in the coming months, that the firstborn of Israel, we talked about this already, that the firstborn is to be dedicated, devoted to the Lord. And that they had to be purchased with a ransom price, a sacrifice. They were to be devoted to the Lord. And the Levites would end up being the, the tribe of Israel who would stand in as the substitute for all the firstborn of all of Israel as they stood and served the Lord in faithfulness and worship. So Jesus is being set apart. He's not only being purified through this ceremony as Mary and Joseph faithfully live under the law, but Jesus is devoted to the service of the Lord even as He is the Lord Himself. There's a sacrifice that's given. A sacrifice of a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. The same sacrifice referenced in Leviticus 12. See, they were faithful to wait and obey. They waited the time that was required of them. They obeyed faithfully the instructions of the Lord they gave, that were given to them. And they waited, but their waiting and their faithfulness was a trust that God was going to provide. Because the law in and of itself said that God would provide someone to atone. But see, here's the thing. Someone to atone must be a perfect someone. Someone who, though living under the law, obeyed the law perfectly. There's a lot going on in these first few verses, but they show us something very important. All of God's laws had good purposes. But even as we see these laws we see this truth, and I want to quote from a guy named James Bijan. He says, Jesus' circumcision, see, it made him subject to the Mosaic law. He was born of a woman, born under the law, which is precisely what enables him to redeem those under the law. So that's from Galatians 4.4. So his circumcision and this, this preparation that his mother brings him about, it's the Preparation for him to be the righteous Savior who would redeem the people of God, the world, under the law. So just listen to this. what's happening here. It's important. This waiting, this faithfulness that they exhibit is preparation for what Jesus will accomplish. In Galatians 4, 3-7 through 7, we read, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption 
as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus willingly became a child. The Son of God took on human flesh. He humbled Himself, as we read in Philippians 2, to take on human flesh to become like us. He submits Himself to live under the law. And what we see, what Luke is giving us is that, look, the Savior of the world, the Creator of the world, has humbled Himself to live under the law so that He might save us who are under the law, cursed, because He will live it out faithfully. There's hope in the midst of that. But that's just the beginning of this, of this text. You see, Mary had to wait and faithfully obey the Lord so that she might participate in the preparation of Christ in His ministry. God used her for that. But she's not the only one we see waiting in this text. We, we see that as they go to the temple, we see that there's a man in Jerusalem. A man, verse 25, whose name was Simeon. And we see that this man was righteous and devout. Strong statements from Luke. He's righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So we see that this man, Simeon, he was given a special gift. A special gift and that the Holy Spirit revealed to, him, <clears throat> revealed to him that he would not die before he saw the coming of the kingdom of God. Simeon had waited. We don't know how old for sure that Simeon was. We know he was definitely elderly. Some traditions outside of Scripture say that he was over 100 years old. But Simeon had waited according to the promise of God. And he had waited faithfully, serving in the temple of God, because God had promised him that he would see the kingdom come. So when Jesus is brought into the temple by his mother and father, Simeon being filled with, by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, he sees Jesus in the temple and he runs up to them and declares, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon had waited and now he saw. Simeon had waited for the truth, the promises of God to come to fruition. And now that he sees Jesus he knows his waiting is over. His waiting is over. He says that he could now depart in peace. And when he says depart from peace, he's not speaking 
about leaving the temple. When he says, I can now depart in peace, he's using a Hebrew idiom that we are familiar with, but he's saying, I can die now in peace. He can die in peace because he knows the Redeemer has come. Simeon had waited. When he saw his hope, he knew he was prepared for eternity. Now, how opposite is Simeon's hope to so much of today's hope? All those things we've talked about waiting for. So much of even modern day Christianity is is waiting on the wrong things. Simeon sees that his Messiah is here, and then he says, I can die in peace now. He knows his redemption from sin is secure. That's what gives him peace. Not that he just knew the promise, but he knew the promise of what Christ had come to do. And he knew that just as God had kept his promise to reveal Him and to bring the Savior into the world as this baby child, He would complete His promise to provide redemption, reconciliation for the people of Israel. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That means He was waiting for Israel's rescuer to come. For Israel to be consoled by the brokenness that it experienced from sin, the rebellion against God. He was waiting for that. And when he sees Christ, he declares, I can now depart in peace. He has peace about his eternity and speaks nothing of this life. This peace about his eternity is what assures him that I can now depart in peace knowing that my salvation is secure. If you have no peace, if you're waiting for peace, consider this. It's a good thing to not know peace apart from knowing your Redeemer. But you should know this. You must know this. What we celebrate on Christmas Day, this Christmas season, is this, that the Lamb of God, the Redeemer of mankind, has come to take the sins of the world away. He is here. And we don't just celebrate a baby being born, we celebrate our Redeemer entering into the world. And we know that He will accomplish redemption. If you're waiting for peace, it'll only come through Him. You won't find it in the temples of this world, you won't find it By waiting for someone else to arrive, he has already come. Salvation has come. 
Simeon had waited, and he now knew peace because his hope has been made real. But it wasn't just Simeon who had waited, was it? As we go down into the story, we see that not only was there a righteous man, but there was a prophetess. Her name was Anna, or Hannah. She's the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. It's very significant that they list where she was from because she's from the tribe of Asher. She's from one of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom who no longer existed, had been dispersed, and, but she was from that tribe, yet she was looking for the Redeemer to come. Anna had waited for a long time. Anna had nothing. According to the text, she was 84 years old. She had been widowed for over, most likely, 60 plus years, for she had been married as a, as a, <clears throat> when she was a, a virgin, so that she's probably a teenager between 13 and 15. She was only married for seven years when her husband died, and from then on she had been a virgin and she had devoted her life to worship at the temple, fasting and praying night and day. But when Jesus shows up at the temple, what's her response? She began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him Jesus, to all who are waiting for what? For the redemption of Israel. Anna had waited half a century. Simeon, likely the same. There's a lot of waiting going on here. The whole point of this sermon is not that you need to have patience. Oh, that is true. The point of this sermon is to demonstrate the purpose of Advent, the joy that we should have at Christmas. See, we anticipate Christmas by eagerly waiting for the day to come so that we might gain a minute glimpse of the joyful, hopeful waiting that was done by those who were waiting for the Messiah to arrive. We're reenacting the waiting that transpired. But see, this is why this question now becomes a statement. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? We don't have to wait anymore. That's the wonderful news. Christ has come. What are we waiting for? We don't have to wait any longer. The Messiah is here. Jesus is here, y'all. Get excited. He was born 2,000 years ago. Our Redeemer's here. He's paid the cost for us anymore. We don't have to wait anymore. So what in the world are we waiting for? 
if we're waiting for anything other than Him. What are you waiting for? He's here. Not only was He born of a virgin, not only did He live under the law faithfully, He died a death He did not deserve. He suffered in our stead. He rose again from the grave. He has accomplished everything. What are we waiting for? It's Christmas. We're waiting for a lot of things. And you know what? You may be waiting for the day to come. You may be waiting to get out of this service. But the greatest thing that you need, you no longer have to wait for. For He has come. He has accomplished redemption for us. And we no longer have to wait. The righteous child became the righteous sacrifice. He's attested by righteous servants. God proved His righteousness by providing a just yet gracious sacrifice to redeem not just Israel, but also the Gentiles, which Simeon highlights. There's nothing that we have to wait for any longer. We can have life here and now. If you've been waiting for all the wrong things, I'm telling you now, you don't have to wait any longer for Christ has come. And you can have redemption when you trust in Him. But here's my, the other side of the question. What are you waiting for? Because I know most of you here, and myself included. And you know what? There's a world all around us, outside this building, a community broken, waiting for hope, waiting for joy, waiting to know redemption. So what are we waiting for why aren't we going? Look at Anna. The person most likely to be forgotten in the midst of this story. She waited. Served faithfully. But when she saw her Savior, when she saw the Redeemer of Jerusalem, the Redeemer of Israel, the Redeemer of the world, what does she do? Immediately, she gives thanks and she begins to speak of Him to all who were waiting. So what are you waiting for? There's people who don't know that they no longer have to wait for Christ has come. I think the most selfish thing that we could do at Christmas would be to continue waiting to go and tell those who are waiting for hope. We have been given the truth, the hope that our Redeemer has come. 
what are we waiting for? I want to end by reading from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. Paul writes this to the church there in Corinth. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What I want you to know today is for two things. If you've been waiting for hope and for peace and you have not known it, it is here. It is in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, our God. So what are you waiting for? Trust in Him. And my fellow believers, here's where we of all people should be joyful, but we must start with repentance. What are we waiting for? Why are we waiting to go and tell the world there's no need any longer to wait? We were reconciled to Him so that we might be reconcilers ourselves. The hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ was made known to us so that we might make it known to the world around us. Simeon, who had waited to hear, said he could depart in peace because he now knew peace. But I can guarantee you, when he left that temple, he didn't leave that temple in silence. He didn't leave that temple keeping the truth to himself, just like Anna did not leave the temple in silence, but instead she went out proclaiming the Redeemer is here. Christmas is an opportunity for us to declare the Redeemer is here. For those who have no hope, I hope that is joy and peace to you. For those of us who know it, Let's not keep it to ourselves. What are we waiting for? We no longer have to wait. Let's pray.